everyone and welcome to Elementary My Dear. I'm Emer McGuire and in today's episode we're talking about lead and other nasty elements. Mike Sims talks toxicity and the sinister side of elements, while Peter Bowler tells us why we must consider the consequences of new technology. This is a six-part series where we explore the wonders of some of the most fascinating elements in the periodic table. Elements are everywhere, and each week we discuss their importance in unusual places, from the elements essential to touchscreens to the chemistry of colours. And today's episode is all about lead and other nasty elements. Coming up on today's episode, I talk to elements expert Mike Sims. We chat about toxic elements, the campaign to remove lead from our petrol, and how low-dose lead poisoning was commonplace until recently. A lot of people in the past, until quite recently, were actually um, suffering low levels of lead poisoning because there was no, it's no recognised, there was no safe level for lead. And what kind, of, what kind of generation are we thinking about whenever you're saying people were kind of suffering low-level lead poisoning? Would it be right up to modern day? My generation. Really? Yep, yep, right up until the 1980s. I also chat with historian Peter Bowler. He tells me how things aren't always as they seem and why we should all endeavour to be professors of forethought. One of the people I'm interested in is H.G. Wells, who everybody knows about because of his science fiction stories, uh, you know, The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine and all the rest of it. But he was also very interested uh, at a practical level in science and its applications, and he made a lot of uh, quite serious predictions about uh, the future, you know, anticipating things like aerial bombing and destroying cities and atomic bombs even, and so on. Um, and he became very much aware of this. Uh, and in 1932, he gave a, a radio broadcast, which was entitled Wanted Professors of Foresight. Let's start things off with Mike. So I'm here with Mike Sims, who's the curator of the Elements exhibition. And today we're going to be talking all about heavy metals. So Mike, most heavy metals are toxic and often they're even toxic at very low concentrations. But we have seen that they turn up in all sorts of places, all sorts of inappropriate roles. Why do we find them everywhere? Well, one of the key things is actually quite a few of them are really quite useful. Or certainly they were useful uh, in the past when we didn't have the same sort of technology as we have now. So uh, as an example, mercury, which everybody knows is really very, very nasty indeed, but it's a liquid, it's a liquid metal, so you can do things with it. You know, liquid at room temperature, you can do things with it you can't do with any other metal. So those kind of tilt switches and things like that, they all used to be mercury. Um, we have more sophisticated ways of doing it now, so your iPhone or whatever is not filled with mercury. When you tip it up, it's got other ways of doing that. Um, also, some of them are quite easy to extract, things like lead. It was easy to extract. It's sort of, uh, it's easy to... To, to make into particular shapes and things. It's easy to smelt. So they're readily available. You said there obviously about, you know, lead is, it can be quite malleable. It can be easy to extract. They're kind of abundant. It was so useful that Romans actually came to Britain looking for metals like lead. Is that right? They did, actually, yes. So there's lots of evidence of uh, Roman lead mining in, in parts of uh, England. I don't think they much went much into Wales and Scotland places, but they did certainly in England and the Mendips. There's lots of evidence of Roman lead mining in in uh, the Peak District as well. So they saw England or Britain 
as, as a source of these metals, and they came over for other, other metals as well. Gold, they, they mined gold. Yeah, so it, it's been around for a long time. It was big business in, in, in Roman times, and we do actually see one of the things that's very interesting is if you look in peat bogs, and you do an analysis of the chemistry of the peat, and you go down and you can date these things, you find a spike during Roman times in lead oh, wow. because they were smelting this lead, and that, of course, puts lead vapour into the air, and some of that just settles out in the peat bogs and it effectively stays there. And obviously we know that lead is toxic. Whenever the Romans were coming over to try and get lead, did they have any idea of how toxic it might be or did they think it was just useful? Oh, no, no, they knew it was toxic. So <laughs> they still it was, wanted it? Oh, yes, yeah, so, so basically uh, they knew that um, if you were sent to lead mines, that was effectively a death sentence. So it was actually, it was slaves mostly were doing the, the lead mining. So they were aware that it wasn't... It wasn't good for them, but it was very useful stuff because uh, you can make pipes out of it. Plumbing, PB, the symbol for lead, of course, is PB, plumbum, which is Latin for lead. So they were using it for all sorts of, of things. And they um, just kept using it despite those they kept using it. effects. Oof. And also something that uh, a lot of people won't be aware of is that lead almost invariably contains some silver. So it was a source of silver. In fact, oh. some lead deposits actually contain relatively high levels of silver, so they're almost more worth uh, mining for the silver content than for the for the lead. I know you were saying there, if you're going to work in the lead mines, it can be a bit of a death sentence, which is just a horrible, horrible thought. But what are the exact effects of toxicity of lead on the body? It affects the nervous system particularly, so it affects brain development. Yeah, it mucks around with your nervous system, so it inhibits the development of the brain and the nervous system. Um, when you get really quite severely uh, poisoned with lead, you get uh, all sorts of other effects and things. The thing called dry bellyache, which is, mm -hmm. well, as its name suggests, you've got a terrible sort of stomachache. But that's when the level's getting quite alarmingly high, and you're usually on the, well on the way to death by that stage. But a lot of people in the past, and until quite recently, were actually um, suffering low levels of lead poisoning because there was no, it's now recognised, there was no safe level for lead. And what kind of what kind of generation are we thinking about whenever you're saying people were kind of suffering low level lead poisoning? Would it be right up to modern day? My generation. Really? Yep, yep, right up until the 1980s. Oh wow, okay. Because of uh, lead in petrol. Yeah, so I've, I've kind of often wondered that, you know, whenever you go to the petrol pump and you're getting your diesel or you're unleaded, I've often wondered why is it called unleaded? Exactly, because unleaded what? Unleaded beer, unleaded yeah. muesli? No, it's it's saying what it isn't. But the thing is that um, up from the 1920s up until uh, kind of mid-80s, petrol was predominantly uh, contained lead, contained a substance called tetraethyl lead, which is an organic compound of lead, um, which is used as an anti-knocking agent, so it stops the, the pistons and cylinders being damaged, you see. And, of course, you burn the petrol and the lead is dispersed as a very fine, you know, particulates um, everywhere. Um, and one of the really telling things that brought this home was uh, in 1951, there's a guy called Claire Patterson. That's a chap, that's a woman. Claire Patterson, anyway. And he was trying to find out how old the Earth is. And what he was doing, he was actually looking at iron meteorites because he knew that these are parts of planets that once existed in our solar system very, very early on. And by looking at lead isotopes in those, you can actually work out how old these things are, you see. But he needed to scrupulously clean the laboratory to do that. 
because the lead levels he was talking about in his meteorites were, you know, infinitesimally small. Mm. But he found that everywhere he went, there was lead, these levels of lead which completely swamped what he was trying to do, and that was coming from, from petrol. And he was very, very instrumental in, in bringing about the change from leaded to unleaded petrol. And one of the things, classic things he came up with is the measles diagram. I think the measles diagram. <laughs> what they looked at was uh, human remains, teeth and things like that from people who lived well before industrial times. And in terms of their, their kind of the content of lead in their teeth or whatever, you might have one dot, say one red dot. And then you look at somebody who has, is suffering from kind of chronic high levels of lead poisoning, and they've got about 2,000 dots. And then you look at just the average Western adult. And how many dots do you think it'd be between one and 2,000? About 1,000? It's 500. Ooh, and that's that is really a, that high. And that is really quite alarming, you know, the difference between something that's going to kill you and what most people were suffering. And that was all coming from this tetraethyl lead. So now, as you're saying, people who be people who were kind of 1980s, people the same age as you, would still have those dots? If you looked at people, would they still have that? Uh, I think your, your body can gradually get rid of some mm-hmm. of it. But certainly yeah. when I was a, a child, I would have been, you know, up in the... I didn't live in a terribly kind of busy area, so I wouldn't have had perhaps three or four hundred, something like that. But... Um, so it was very prevalent. And the, the story about tetraethyl lead is a classic. It's, it's a conspiracy theory, except that it's true. <laughs> so is this about the guy who has invented it? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, a guy called uh, Thomas Midgley Jr. And he was working for General Motors. And in the 19, early 1920s, he came up with his anti-knocking agent for, for engines, which was based on tetraethyl lead. And the thing was, there were other alternatives, ethanol for instance, an ethanol-blended sort of fuels would do the same sort of job. But you can't make money out of that. Whereas the tetraethyl lead company, or ethyl, as they called it, so that didn't have the lead mentioned, um, they could make money out of it, lots and lots of money, because effectively they had a, a kind of monopoly on this, this substance. And there were lots and lots of papers published saying, no, this stuff's fine, you know. And they were all, of course, paid by the, the car industry and the oil industry, to do this and this went on of course for well from the 1920s all the way through to the kind of early mid 80s and Thomas Midgley he was uh, uh, the plant when they set it up there were quite a few deaths in this plant and hallucinations and illness you know it wasn't a good place to work you know it was dealing but sure with we'll a, keep going anyway yeah. and then, then in uh, 1923 Paul Midgley he had to go off on a long holiday to Florida to sort of cure himself of lead poisoning that was his first bout of lead poisoning then a couple of years later, he did, he, there was a press conference and he, he poured this tetraethyl lead over his hands and he sat with a big kind of jar of this stuff, sniffing it in for 60 seconds. And they say, I can do this every day Canada for years. Say, you know, this is safe. This is fine. Yeah. And then he, he had to go off again because he got lead poisoning from that. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, was, it was absolutely... Uh, terrible and the fact that this was just perpetuated because businesses were making lots and lots of money yeah. out of it so no matter how well. unsafe it was it was good for business yeah and so it wasn't until the 1980s that it was finally uh, removed now the, the, the thing about thomas midgley he also not only did he invent tetraethyl lead oh god he invented something else terrible did he yeah cfc's chlorofluorocarbons so he ruined those on layer as well <laughs> yes he did that so so you know he, he's up there amongst the greats of, of really 
doing the most appalling things. And uh, his death. How do you think he might have died? Mm, was it was it to do with lead? Possibly? No, no, it no? was nothing to do with that. No, no, what happened was that um, he contracted poliomyelitis in his early 50s. And um, he, he, because he was an inventor, he devised some system of pulleys and ropes to help him get out of bed. Oh, wow. A few years later, he, he died, strangled by his own invention. Oh, <laughs> It's almost like an indication of what he's what he's done to the planet with those CFCs yes, and with yes. the lead and everything. Oh. So right. But one actually a final very interesting thing that's that really brings home the link between um, the effects of lead and the removal of it from petrol is that one of the effects of lead was uh, it, it tends to cause aggression in mm. people. It affects the nervous system, and countries have removed lead. At different times from petrol, you see. I think there's a couple of countries. I think Nigeria still has lead in their petrol. But anyway, one or two places still do. More aggressive but car drivers then in Nigeria? Possibly, <laughs> yes. Um, it was found that lead is removed at a particular date, and around about 20 years later, there was a decline in violent crime. Every single country, and that decline is tied in with that, that you know, and that amazing. really does bring it home I mean there was a kid I went to school with who lived in a very big old house and he was a bit he was a bit aggressive and we used to joke about oh he's probably got lead pipes in his yeah. so that was when I was in in uh, yeah I'm so you knew was about 11 or 12 yeah, I so knew, knew about, about the effects it was well known. of lead yes that is unbelievable yeah I think whatever you see as you're saying like a change in, in people's temperament and personality because of an element mm. and kind of being able to track that change over years is fascinating. I think that's just amazing. It might be why I'm a bit bolshy, really. <laughs> might, lead in you're just going to blame everything on the lead. <laughs> that's something I think we should probably touch on is the clear campaign. Yes. So was that a campaign to try and remove lead from petrol? It was. It was a guy called um, Jeffrey Bradman who... Uh, and he... Uh, he recruited a guy called Des Wilson, who was a veteran campaigner, and he was also a chief executive of Shelter, I think, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And he was a brilliant, brilliant campaigner. And so he set up this campaign to to lobby the government to remove lead from petrol. And there were these reports which were saying, effectively, you know, this is very, very bad. We are poisoning our children, and we're all complicit in it. And so... Uh, it was a brilliant campaign because it was amazingly effective. It started in 1981, and and within a couple of years, the government said, right, every car, new car from 1985, by 1985 at the latest, must be run on lead-free petrol, and every forecourt must have lead-free mm-hmm. petrol, you see. So it was amazingly effective. So from 1985, was that the end of any lead of petrol? No, no, because, of course, there's there's lots of older cars. So there was a mm-hmm. long period of time when there was kind of four-star. You're too young to remember four-star petrol. With lead in it. <laughs> I don't uh, remember <laughs> Four-star petrol. You had two-star petrol. It was a bit rubbish. <laughs> and four-star. Um, so a lot of forecasts, they had both. And that's yeah. why it was unleaded, you see, because you had the leaded stuff because there were lots of cars which couldn't run on unleaded because you had this knocking problem, you see, which would damage uh, cylinders and pistons. But then over time, of course, those all those old cars mm-hmm. kind of fall by the wayside, as it were, and it all becomes unleaded. But, of course, there are still some cars today which really require petrol with this anti-knocking agent in, but there are uh, substitutes for it, so they yeah. use molybdenum compounds and things like that. So when, kind of what time frame do you think were 
the majority are, are most cars using unleaded early nineties. I would just say by by the mid nineties. My nineties. Yeah, no, my my first car, which was late eighties, was still definitely leaded, and the second one I had was still definitely leaded, but I didn't care. Oh, I just, put, <laughs> I just no, I didn't care in terms like of I put I put the unleaded in it. I didn't care if it damaged it. Yeah. So. Um, that's so but recent. Yes, it is. It it's is. really yeah. recent. Yeah. And actually, I wasn't aware of, you know, whenever I was learning to drive and whenever I got my first car, I wasn't aware of, you know, the fact that petrol used to be leaded, mm. obviously, as a, mm. as a 90s child. And I remember one of the first times I went to get petrol, very embarrassingly, I the guy came to fill up the car and he says do you want unleaded or diesel? And I was confused by the question. I said, yeah. no, I want petrol. Because I didn't really, I didn't understand yes. why it was called that and it kind of didn't make the connection in my brain. Mm. There are a couple of other metals as well that you've touched on that are poisonous, that are toxic, but mm. ha- that have been used. Mm. Despite us knowing the effects of them, I know you mentioned mercury there being used, but it's also been used in things like, is it makeup and, and teeth and powders? Yes, yes, it's a, it's a nightmare that of what what has been used in the past rather rather foolishly. So, so mercury for a long time has been used as a, as a cure for various ailments. So it was uh, a cure for syphilis in the in the old days, long time ago. <laughs> Just uh, drink a wee glass of mercury. <laughs> yeah, and partly it is, is is kind of toxic stuff. So it's a case of it'll, it'll kill the bacteria before kill before it kills the the people. And then there was also a a medicine called calomel. Uh, and mm. calomel was used for all sorts of things, actually. Like a fix-all? Yeah, and it was used as teething powder for for, for babies, you know. Um, and if you gave your baby too much, you got pink baby syndrome, which is one of the effects of too much mercury is you turn a bit pink. And calomel was only kind of struck off the the medicine books, as they were, in about 1958, something like that. So this all uh, sounds terribly recent. And it, well, and it's still used uh, in indirectly in some uh, vaccines and things like that. And that's why there's a lot of sort of scamming. Oh, it's got mm. mercury. But it's not a direct sort of, you're not being injected with mercury. And what about things like, um, what about like everlasting pills? Oh, the everlasting yeah, pill. Yeah, what about was, those? That was uh, a, another element. It's not as bad as lead and, and mercury, but it's still fairly toxic. Antimony, um, sometimes called stibnum. It's one of those ones that's got tricky, you know, what's the symbol for antimony? And you think, oh, A-N, A-T? No, it's S-B. Oh. Anyway, the thing is that uh, it is a sort of poison, and one of the things that in, in medieval times was very popular, you had this everlasting pill, which it, people tended to get infested with all sorts of parasites in those days, you know, worms and things like that. And so a way of getting rid of these was you would swallow this antimony pill and it would effectively purge your innards because all the worms think, oh, I don't like this, and they let go and uh-huh. they, they come out the other end. And because the antimony is a little kind of pellet... Like a little metal pellet? Little metal pellets, pellet, probably, you know, size of your thumbnail or whatever, like and you little, can just... Uh, I'm thinking of one of those, you know, those little BB guns? I'm thinking of a little BB gun. bit, bit bigger like, than that, yeah. Okay. So it's probably, yeah, the size of a, a sort of marble or your thumbnail or oh, something like big, that. That's quite big, actually. Yeah, because you've got to retrieve it at the other end, you see. <laughs> That's the thing, you know, so we, you, you swallow it and it purges everything that's oh, in, wow. just think, oh, I can get it out of here. Um, and then you can retrieve it at the other end. So was it reusable? It was. Because oh. it was a lasting pill. You can I hand it down generation to generation. But it was known it by certainly, by the late 18th, early 19th, it was realised that actually it was pretty bad for you. And another another system they used was actually where you'd um, you put wine into an antimony uh, goblet, mm. leave it overnight, and the wine would <laughs> let the poison uh, create, seep into it. Create uh, antimony tartrate, and then you would drink that, and that would have the same effect. Oh. You see, and it's 
been suggested that Mozart was a victim of that. Is that do people say that's how he died? Yeah, because he was he was a bit sickly anyway, and and he did take these things, and it's been Finished suggested. Certainly, the symptoms, his final symptoms, which were kind of convulsions and vomiting, things like that, are all very consistent with antimony poisoning. Oh, I'm kind of stuck on the idea of you kind of describing it as a bit of a reusable laxative kind of, that can be handed around. down generations. Yes, I'm just imagining <laughs> kind of my granny or someone giving me this and saying, use this well. Um, yes. Oh, yes. I don't really like the idea of that. No. So we've talked there about heavy metals. We've talked about lead, mercury and antinomy. Um, and we've also talked about the clear campaign. Oh, one, uh, actually, one thing I'd like to say about the clear campaign is that you tend to think about a campaign like that that was so effective in such a short time. It, it kind of... It's sort of the thing. And my sister worked for them, for Clear. Oh, wow. So I have a, a direct connection with it, you see. And it was funny that when she, this, you know, back in the early 80s, and I always had this notion that, that my sister was in this big organisation. She was just one of lots and lots of people. There was Des Wilson, my sister, and one other girl. And, and that, that was, was it. it. That was it. And they kind of changed the course Yeah, there were just of three of them. I mean, Des Wilson use. was amazingly effective as a as a campaigner, which is why um, Jeffrey Bradman chose him, really. You know, he's very, very good. So. That's amazing. Yeah. So. Mike Sims, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to Elementary, My Dear, with Emer Maguire. Next up, I have a chat with someone who can hopefully inspire us to think about future consequences when embracing new technology. Peter Bowler is Professor Emeritus of the History of Science at Queen's University in Belfast. So far in this episode, we have talked about how things aren't always what they seem. Uh, so, for example, things like lead that we were adding to petrol. Maybe in the past, we hadn't thought about all the damage it could do in the future. And now we're going to talk to Peter Bowler. So, Peter, just before we get stuck into how things might not be as they seem, would you be able to give us just a bit of an overview about your area of interest that's linked to this topic? Well, I'm a historian of science, and uh, most of my career I worked on Darwinism. Uh, but more recently, I've got interested in ideas about uh, progress, uh, not just in evolution, but in, in uh, human history, and especially techno- technological progress. Uh, and I, I, I think I can see some interesting parallels between Darwinian evolution in biology and the way technologies uh, evolve in the human environment. So obviously we have had kind of massive advancements and things in tech and science over the years. But as I said at the start there, some of these have had a negative impact on humanity or on the environment. And one of the things we've talked about quite a lot is lead and the kind of campaign for for lead-free air. Have there been kind of other scenarios in science that you're aware of where humans were maybe engaged in activities or developing things in science that they thought was good at the time, but that might have gone on to cause us a little bit more trouble? Well, there are lots of them, and I think people seriously begin to think about this in the the 20th century when you get this flood of new inventions at the start of the century of cinema, radio, aeroplanes, motor cars, and and so on. Um, And uh, all introduced uh, with a a great acclaim for the benefits they might offer. But from the start, some people began to worry about the the long-term negative uh, consequences. And one of the people I'm interested in is H.G. Wells, 
who everybody knows about because of his science fiction stories, uh, you know, The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine and all the rest of it. But he was also very interested uh, at a practical level in science and its applications. And he made a lot of uh, quite serious predictions about uh, the future, you know, anticipating things like aerial bombing and destroying cities and atomic bombs even and so on. Um, and he became very much aware of this. Uh, and in 1932, he gave a, a radio broadcast, which was entitled Wanted Professors of Foresight. And his point was that there was increasing numbers of these examples of technologies introduced for benefit, but then turn out to have long-term negative uh, consequences. And then we really ought to be better at trying to think through this and when the when the technology first emerges somebody should be sitting down and thinking well okay yeah it looks good at the moment but what if the whole thing expands exponentially and so on uh, and his example was the motor car uh, which was introduced obviously because it seemed so much better a means of transport than horses uh, drawing carts and carriages um, but by the 1930s, was absolute chaos on the roads. The, the number of people killed on the roads was horrific, you know, by modern standards. And, the, you know, the roads were getting choked up and, and all the rest of it. And he said somebody should have realised when motor cars first became, started to become popular, just what the knock-on consequences would be for the whole road network uh, that would have to be redesigned to accommodate them. But nobody did. And here we are frantically trying to catch up. Uh, and, and that's an exa exactly parallel, I think, to the, the lead uh, mm -hmm. example, where it was introduced for apparent benefits. It made motor car engines run better. Uh, but nobody thought of what would happen when millions of people were pumping the lead out of their exhausts into the atmosphere of big cities. Whenever you're talking about the example there of the cars, it's making me think, you know, if we were aware of the consequences, would we have done anything differently? Because people probably still would have wanted their cars. It's kind of like now, you know, we know the electric cars are probably superior. They're better in terms of the environment, but we haven't all jumped on getting electric cars. Do you think it's just that we should have been aware of all the things that are going to come off inventing cars? Or do you think it would have changed how humans use these things? Well, uh, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a serious issue. I mean, people tend to look for the immediate benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as well says, we're not very good at thinking through the long term uh, consequences. Um, so, yes, it, it's very uh, hard to see how you could sort of stop these things yeah. coming in. The, you know, the, 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 the inventions are constantly coming on stream uh, and they're promoted by people. Uh, and obviously the people who promote them see the positive benefits and, and, and that's how they publicise it. Um, and, and people pick the things up and, and, and run with it. And it's then only later that, that uh, we start to realise that, that uh, as the thing catches on, there may be long-term consequences which aren't so beneficial. We just don't seem very good at that. So um, <laughs> I suppose I'm not uh, so confident that we would be able to, 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 to block that. It seems to be a sort of intrinsic part of the human reaction to new technologies or new things in general to, to accentuate the, the, the benefits to begin with and worry about the long-term consequences later. Whenever you think about new technology, you think about your phones, you think about electric cars and, and that kind of thing, you tend to think 
convenience over the consequences. You know, I think that seems to be the human way. Yeah, I think convenience is a good example. Uh, for instance, with with plastics, uh, I mean, you know, where they were introduced and popularized in the, the mid twentieth century. And sure, yeah, it's so convenient to have all these plastic bottles and everything else. Uh, and then no one thought of what would happen when the whole world became choked with plastic because everybody was throwing away half a dozen plastic bottles every day. Uh, and uh, so you know, convenience is what brings it in. Uh, and it, it's only later that you realise, well, actually, if we'd stop to think about what we would, the consequences of flooding the world with waste plastic might be. But of course you don't, the people didn't think about that at the time. And I suppose at the time, people are thinking, what, back in the 70s or 80s? Oh, you need to start using plastic. You need to start getting your plastic bottles and things. You probably didn't anticipate how huge that would become and how much of a part of everyday life plastic containers would be. You know, you maybe weren't able to predict in the future that, as you said, we would be choking the ocean and choking the world yeah, with yeah. plastics. Yeah, it, it's partly, it is that the what works okay on a small scale becomes disastrous on, on the large scale. And so we tend to think in terms of the, the, the small scale, because that's where the immediate benefits are, and we don't um, sort of scale it up uh, uh, to, to, to imagine what the consequences uh, would have been. I mean, that again is the same point that Wells with the motor car. You know, when they first came in, there, were, there weren't very many of them, so it didn't make that much difference, mm. and a few people got the benefits of them. It wasn't until you know, more or less everybody could, could get, have a car, uh, and, and of course you know, car ownership expanded enormously uh, at about the time he was talking in the 1930s. That's just when uh, mass use of motor cars started to come in. Uh, and then you began to see the, the, the consequences of flooding the roads with these things. And obviously you're just talking there about HG Wells and you've mentioned in 1932, you know, that broadcast that he made that we need people to be thinking about the future, even if the technology seems worthwhile at the minute, we need to think about the consequences. Um, but you also mentioned there that people will probably know HG Wells as being a sci-fi writer. Mm -hmm. um, were those themes touched on in his books? Oh yes, I think the, the, the one thing that, that, that interests me is the interplay between uh, science fiction uh, and sort of what you might call popular science uh, efforts to uh, discuss uh, and predict the, the, the incoming new technologies. And so uh, Wells' novels talk about things that uh, his novel, the, the, the War in the Air, uh, was published in 1908. It's only a few years after the Wright brothers, and yet he predicts, uh, you know, the devastating consequences of wars fought with bombers. Uh, and of course, in the interwar years, everybody thought they'd be dropping poison gas. Uh, and Wells predicts that this sort of thing could, if that happened, you could more or less wipe out civilization. Uh, more or less very similar to what we worried about about the atomic bomb and are still worrying about a bit later on. And he also predicted atomic bombs. So he obviously had the foresight to not only think of what would be coming in the future, but also think of the more the dark side of it, really. Yeah, he's, he's pretty good at, at seeing that, that, that there could be uh, consequences, uh, that, that what's beneficial in one area is, has negative consequences in another. Aviation is a good example. Everybody thought, well, if we can fly from here to America, and how convenient will that be? Yeah, but what about if the planes have got bombs rather than people in them? You touched on there about aviation and things and those kind of developments. 
What do you think are the biggest kind of technological developments that we have had that have a bit of a dark side that we maybe hadn't anticipated at all? Well, I think well, the plastics is what we already mentioned, but I, I think the, the, the whole sort of communications technology, the internet and social media, we're only just starting to appreciate that, all, you know, that despite the huge advantages that, 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 that people see in them, they do have a, a darker side. Uh, and the current concern about mental health problems being driven by uh, bullying on the social media and so on, uh, I think are an illustration of that, that, that uh, the people who introduce these technologies see only the advantages and people pick them up because of the advantages. But then, you know, there are nasty people around as well, well as nice people. Uh, and you open the technology up, it opens up to everybody, including those who want to do things that turn out to be... Uh, rather harmful and I think uh, yeah, again we're only just starting to realize that there can be downsides uh, to the, uh, the, the, the otherwise positive benefits conferred by uh, the internet and, and, and social media. So obviously the internet is a really good example because anywhere where there is the opportunity for things to go wrong or for to harness something for maybe more illicit matters people will use it to their advantage and the internet is, is a great example of that. But have there been kind of big examples of technology that was developed that didn't catch on that maybe people thought would be a huge thing in the future? You know, I'm thinking of Back to the Future when we thought everyone would have flying cars and hoverboards. Mm -hmm. Has there been technology like that that hasn't quite caught on? Well, actually, that, that's a, a good example because in the 1930s, uh, the people who were pushing aviation uh, were interested in, in long-range aviation, you know, crossing the Atlantic and so on. But also there was a lot of expectation that we would have personal planes, just like you have a car in the garage. You'd have a, a wee little plane, you'd, you'd, you'd wheel out and fold the wings off and off you'd go. Uh, and that hasn't really taken off uh, because, well, part of all, you, you need landing fields and it really only works with helicopters and they're much more technically challenging to fly and so on but no one thought of well what would happen to the airspace over a big city i mean imagine air traffic control in a city where everybody's got their own private plane uh, again it would be absolute chaos and in that case it didn't work out uh, the notion of everybody having a uh, an aircraft of their own uh, just uh, it's one of those things that's sort of theoretically possible uh, but it, it didn't work out in practice and whenever we heard earlier, obviously, about the, the CLEAR campaign, I was quite amazed whenever Mike told us that it was a very small campaign. There were only three people working on it, but it made a huge difference to society and obviously a huge difference to how people travel and how people use petrol. Do you think there are campaigns that can be as successful as that now that can change the way we use things in the future? I'm just thinking about, because you were using the car example, mm -hmm. You know, why are we not driving the electric cars yet? Do you think that we don't kind of feel that pressure as a society to change? Uh, I think in the case of electric cars, once they become, um, you know, a, 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 as easily usable, I mean, the, the people still worry a bit about the expense and, and charging them and so on. Uh, I, I think in that case, once the, the, they become as easily available as the old-fashioned ones, then things will, will um, catch on. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you have to you know, worry whether that's uh, going to happen with uh, other things. I mean, I think the case of plastics, I mean, people have, you know, the David Attenborough and the oceans and so 
so on, people have suddenly become uh, aware. So that's an example where, uh, you know, in this case, you know, a, a single but TV program sort of has a, a, a huge impact uh, on people's things. So it can happen. Um, so uh, let, let's let's hope. But the problem is again, you know, it, we shouldn't be catching up. It shouldn't need people to be coming in and saying, hey, we're polluting the oceans or, hey, we're polluting the air in our, our cities. We should have spotted it before we got to that situation. That was what Wells was driving at. And you know, he's quite right. And we don't seem to, still don't seem to be very good at it. Although we've got all these institutions that are uh, devoted to predicting the future. But uh, it is kind of institutionalized now. Futurology is a recognized sort of activity. But... You know, we still don't seem very good at it in some respects. And why is that? Is that because big companies that are developing the newest technology, the best technology, are being funded by other big, huge companies and they don't want to see the downsides? Well, I think the problem is with with technical innovation is that inevitably the people doing it are focused on the purpose they see in it, which is, mm. you know, they think is a beneficial purpose it, it's um it, it's in it, 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 it sounds cynical to say it's in their interest it's just what they do to look for things that would make things easier or quicker or better or whatever that's why you're into technical innovation so almost inevitably you tend to focus more on the short-term beneficial consequences that's why you're doing the inventing mm. Um, but you know, for obvious reasons, it's not quite so easy for you to get your head around what the consequences might be once the thing does catch on uh, and, and then becomes global. There are some companies now, I know that are zero waste companies or companies that are taking waste and turn it into fuel. Or even heard an ad for a company the other day that is making shoes, but it's all out of recycled, reused plastic. So people are maybe catching on, but as you say, it's probably a bit too late. But people seem to be using it now in an entrepreneurial sense, you know, to, to create their companies out of the fact that we've made these mistakes in the past. Well, that's a, that's a good move, really. That, that, that's a, uh, in a sense, you, you need individuals not only to start campaigns against the, the, the harmful um, effects, but also to, to, to make use of it. And, yeah, you know, more power to them. <laughs> Peter Bowler, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to today's guests. I'm someone who absolutely loves new technology and I appreciate the fact that we've come so far in our technological advancements in the past few years, especially in my lifetime. But it's important to remember all actions have consequences and Peter's insight into the importance of foresight really hit home with me. I also feel incredibly lucky to have missed the days of lead petrol and everlasting pills. I'm not sure which is worse. To end today's episode, I thought I'd share a fascinating fact with you all on today's theme of lead and other nasty elements. Back in ancient Rome, people added lead to wine to give it a sweeter taste. Isn't that gross? Imagine using lead as a mixer on a night out. The Catholic Church actually ended up banning people from doing this in 1498, but that didn't stop it from happening and it ended up causing widespread poisoning right up until the late 18th century. Coming up on the next episode, we hear all about the elements of technology, right from our ancestors' humble beginnings to the technology of the future. Thank you for listening to Elementary, my dear, with me, Emer Maguire. (laughs) 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Also, I would really love if you could take the time to leave us a review. Reviews help other like-minded people discover our podcast. Elementary, my dear, is created by Emer Maguire and National Museums Northern Ireland. You can also follow me on Facebook at Emer Maguire, on Twitter at Emer M Official and on Instagram at Emer Maguire Official. For further information, you can check out National Museums Northern Ireland at nmni.com.